Uh, why don't you go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 13 with me. We are in Paul's practical application section of Romans, and we remember that it starts off in ch- uh, chapter 12, verse 1, with this charge to be living sacrifices, which basically means that there's a response to the gospel. And our response to the gospel, um, our response to God's redemptive plan, ultimately requires or demands that um, we live our lives in a way that honors what he's done for us. And so if we remember how chapter 11 sort of ends, it ends with this amazing um, praise of God, Paul. Paul basically sort of bursts forth in praise on God's goodness because of what he's done for us in his redemptive plan. And he leads from there right into what's the expectation then? What does God want from us? And what he wants from us is for us to live our lives as a living sacrifice. And to do that, he says, we have to be transformed. He says, don't be conformed to the world, which means to be continually shaped into what the world wants, but rather be changed or transformed into a new way of thinking, a new way of living. And uh, there should be a distinct difference between how we behave and what we look like and what happens in the world around us. How many of you have ever been in a situation where you've met another Christian, you've known them for a while, and you had no clue they were a Christian, and all of a sudden they say, oh, I'm a Christian too. And it comes as a bit of a surprise or a shock. It shouldn't be that way. Now, do you think that might have ever happened with you, where you tell someone you're a believer and maybe they're a little shocked? Let's hope not. But the reality of it is there should be something different about us that makes us stand out from the world around us. And so Paul's been walking us through that. He's talked about a number of things. One is the world's always into this one-upmanship, you know? Got to be better than everybody else, you know? And Paul says, that's not the way it's supposed to be with Christians. We're supposed to think of ourselves um, not so highly that puts us above others, but rather to think of ourselves reasonably, appropriately, how we fit into the body of Christ. I'm not better than you, you're not better than me, we all have a function and a role to fulfill, that's the way we ought to live our lives. You know, um, I work in a, in a corporate environment, and I'll tell you, in the corporate environment, there's a lot of backstabbing, and people thinking they're better than somebody else, you know? It's not supposed to be that way with believers. When you come into the church, we shouldn't treat others that way, right? So we talked a little bit about that, we also talked about what it means to love one another without hypocrisy. And we spent quite a bit of time on that. It has to do with blessing and not cursing when you have others that don't treat you correctly and mistreat us or persecute us or are supposed to respond a certain way because love is, again, supposed to be without hypocrisy. Last week, he talked about our submission to governing authorities, what's expected of us. You know, it's interesting that um, when you look around the world and you look at where Christians are persecuted most severely, by governments. It's always because they think of Christians as being, you know, opposed to the government. If anything, they shouldn't be afraid of Christians, right? I mean, just from a, you know, because if anything, you would expect Christians to be more willing to accept their authority, even when that authority isn't always righteous or just. Because we're called to that. Um, you think about the Christians in the first century. The only thing they did wrong was they preached the gospel. But yet, the Roman government kept trying to just slam down and clamp down on them. But you know what's interesting is that most of the rebellion came from the Jews, not the Christians. Um, that's why they went in and ran, the Romans went in and ransacked Jerusalem in AD 70, was to crush the opposition they felt from the, from the Jews. But yet the Christians were the ones that were actively persecuted, not the Jews at that time. Rather strange. That's the way governments have always responded. And anything, but yet, if they were to read our own scriptures, they would see that, if anything, we're supposed to submit to them and to recognize their authority. 
This week we're going to look at something that's sort of related, and it's what our obligation or expectancy is towards other believers. So last week we sort of had, what's our, what does God expect us when it comes to governing authorities? Today is, what does he expect towards one another? Believer to believer. We're in Romans chapter tw- uh, 13, starting in chapter or verse 8. Let me go ahead and read this for you. Romans chapter 13, I'm going to read 8 through 14. It says this, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to be awakened from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone, and the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. Let's go ahead and break this down. The first thing we see here is that we're supposed to be in debt to one another. Paul says that we ought to owe only one thing to each other, and that's the debt of love. Notice he says, owe nothing to no one except love. He uses a double negative there. We don't usually talk that way. He says, owe nothing to no one. There's no stronger way that he could say this except to love one another. The word for owe there means to be indebted to somebody. And so uh, I like the way this is translated because it doesn't just say love one another. It says you ought to be in debt. What does it mean to be in debt to somebody? You owe them something. You should pay them back. And he says what we've got to be doing is paying back one another with love. In this context, Paul has in mind an obligation or a debt due as a result of sin. So what he's getting at here is he's saying that we should be indebted to one another. We shouldn't behave in a way that um, puts us in debt to sin or puts us in debt where we owe somebody something other than love. And this verified by what he does in verse 9 where he mentions all of these interpersonal sins. You notice he lists a number of interpersonal sins there that put us into debt to one another. Um, you know, in some cultures and society, when a, when a man commits adultery, um, the woman can sue, or vice versa. And there can be uh, civil penalties, financial penalties, for doing that, because there's a debt now owed. And so he mentions a number of these interpersonal sins. I find it interesting that, did you ever notice that when we speak of bankruptcy, we use a phrase, forgiving the debt. Isn't it interesting? The word forgiveness used of, of releasing somebody from what they owe. It's the same word that's used here. So when we sin against somebody, we owe them something. And Paul's trying to help us to understand that we shouldn't owe anyone anything. We shouldn't be sinning against one another. That if anything, we should owe them one thing only, and that is love. So let's talk about that. What is love? What does... He uses the word agape here. We can get into the debate about different Greek words and that, but agape is just primarily a fond affection for someone or a deep regard or respect for them. Okay, It means to look upon them and to recognize them and to honor them, um, to be fond towards them. First um, Corinthians chapter 13, why don't you go ahead and turn there with me. First Corinthians chapter 13 kind of spells this out for us. We're going to do some bouncing around today. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you all know this passage, starting in verse 4. Love is patient, love is kind. 
and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, which means it's not selfish or self-centered. It's not provoked, which means it's not stirred up. It means when somebody does something, love prevents you from responding um, agitated in a way that's agitating. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. It means that we're quick to forgive and to forget. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, it believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. But love itself never fails. And so he gives us a pretty good picture there of love. He says that it's any number of things. One of the things he points out there is that it's sacrificial. Remember what John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's a picture of sacrificial love. God's greatest act of love is that he put his Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross, sacrificially for us. He paid a debt that we owed. That's the essence of love. So agape is always sacrificial. In fact, Ephesians chapter 5, you all remember this passage. Husbands, love your wives. He uses the same word there. Love your wives. But notice what he does then. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. But you notice it says there that Christ gave himself up. That's the essence of love. Giving yourself up for somebody else. And so we have this charge here, he says, that we are supposed to love one another. But not only love one another, but in some respects be in debt to them. We owe them love. Notice that Jesus commanded in John 13... He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. John wrote that uh, we're to love one another because God loves us. So again, this is just a reaction or response to what God's already done in the redemptive plan, the gospel. He writes this, John in chapter 4, verse 7 of 1 John Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God is manifest in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It's interesting how what we find in love, God does does not command us to love others. What he says is, it's because I loved you that you now are expected to love others. So God demonstrated the very thing that he asks us to do, he demonstrates himself. And so as, as John points out here, you can't say, well, I love God and God loves me if you don't love other people. Does that make sense? You can't say, I love God and God loves me if you refuse to love the people that Jesus says we're supposed to love. 
Now, you're probably sitting there thinking, well, that's not so hard. I love the people that renew. <laughs> and we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, but that's the truth, is that love is a defining factor of who we are as believers when we understand what God has done for us in the gospel. We are obligated to it. We don't have a choice anymore. We can't choose who to love and who not to love. And we're going to see that in a little bit here as well. Because God has chosen to love us, we're now expected to love others. So why is that so important? What Paul tells us here is that the reason that is so important is because it fulfills the law. And in essence, what he's saying is it it becomes the catalyst that makes it possible for us to satisfy God's righteous demands. Okay? The law, as we know, is filled with over 600 commandments that regulated the Jews' lives. And it included everything from what they could eat and what they couldn't eat to what they could do and not do. But it regulated their behavior towards one another as well. There's a number of laws that all relate to how, or, um, directly relate to how they relate one to another. When they sin against somebody, how is it supposed to be handled? When they cause injury, what's supposed to happen? When they cause somebody financial loss, how that's supposed to be resolved? And so there's a number of laws that all dictate exactly um, how their society is supposed to function and how they're supposed to interrelate one to another. And what's interesting about that is it would be a bit overwhelming if you had to run around with a stack of index cards that had a law for everything that you're going to ever face in your life. Because we don't function that way. And in fact, Paul says himself in the book of Romans here that when he tried to live by the law, it basically brought death. It's impossible. And what's interesting is we, and and I think we can probably um, say this with with a certain amount of confidence, that each of us probably has certain rules and things that we we know we should do and things we really want to do. And let me ask it this way Do you always do those things? Do you ever find yourself knowing you shouldn't lose your temper, but you lose your temper anyway? Do you ever find yourself saying things that you know you probably shouldn't say, or doing things you know you shouldn't do, or let's now turn it and say, do you ever find yourself not doing the things you know you really should do? Paul says that. Paul says, I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I don't want to do. That's just the reality. It is impossible for us, no matter what our will says, to always just do the right things. And so what becomes really important about this is Paul says love becomes the tool, if you will. Love becomes what makes that possible. If you genuinely, honestly love somebody, you're going to be tempted to treat them a certain way. Right? You notice how easy it is to strike out and hurt somebody who's hurt you? It's not always quite so easy to reach out and strike somebody that didn't hurt you, is it? It can still happen, but it's so much easier. When they treat me this way, I'm going to treat them the same way. It's tit for tat. You punch me, I'll punch you. That's so easy to do, right? It's a lot harder to do when you really are intent on loving somebody. Now, it doesn't mean we still can't hurt each other when we love each other. It's a sin problem with us. But you notice here that he says in verse 10, He who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. He who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Every sin that we commit is either a direct offense to God or a direct offense to somebody else. Do you notice how the Ten Commandments are broken down? The first four of them talk about direct offenses to God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make idols. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. 
Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Those are direct defenses to God. Do you notice what he does with the rest of the commandments? They're all about direct defenses to individuals. Honor your father and mother. Not murdering. Not committing adultery. Not stealing. Not bearing false witness. Not coveting. Those are all about people. So the first four commandments are about loving God. The rest of the commandments, the following six, are all about loving one another. That's why Jesus said that you can fulfill the whole entire law by loving God, the first four, and loving others, the remaining six. So if you love, you can fulfill all of those. So while you may not be able to do it out of your own will, oh, I've got ten commandments here, I'll just make sure I can check them off, I get up in the morning, I make sure I do the first four, then the rest of the day I focus on the rest of the six, right? It doesn't work that way. But if we have love in our hearts, if we recognize what God has done for us, love people like He does, if we indebt ourselves to them to love them, then these things become more natural. In fact, what's really interesting about this, we shared this um, before, is that when God gave the law to the Jews, Deuteronomy chapter 20, we have this long chapter after chapter after chapter where God lists out, I think there's... 613 commandments there in the book of Deuteronomy, if if the numbers are right. And God lists all these things out. And I imagine that after the Jews sat there and listened to all that, they probably started to sweat a little bit. Like, whew. You know, my hand's cramping because I'm writing all the notes, you know, and writing them all out. And then God has this to say to them. Here, good luck. Right? You don't remember that part? Here you go. Good luck. I'll be waiting. No, he says this. Um... Immediately after he gave him the law, he said keeping it would, and this is this exact quote, would not be too difficult for you. Nor is it out of your reach to do these things. A few verses later he said that all they had to do was love the Lord your God by obeying his voice and holding fast to him. So loving God and holding fast to him, God says if you do that, all these 613 commandments that I just laid out for you will not be too difficult for you to do. Now, does it mean they would do them perfectly? No, they'd still sin. But God made provision for that, didn't he? In the sacrificial system. Um, he even makes, makes um, provision for us in the New Testament when, when John tells us, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. In other words, God wasn't saying, look, if you just love me, you'll never sin again. What he's saying is, it won't be too difficult for you to do these things if you love me and let me have your heart. And it's the same thing that he's saying here. When Paul writes that we are expected to owe each other only one thing, which is love, he's basically saying, that'll make these things not so difficult. And he he highlights a number of things here. He says, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not, not commit murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in the saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so, Paul reminds us here of the same thing that God reminded the Israelites in the wilderness. When you indebt yourself to only love, these things are not too difficult. So these few things he listed here, adultery and murder and stealing and coveting and one another within the body of Christ, um, would all sort of fade and dissipate, if you will, if they would simply understand that they should owe each other love. 
Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 4, Keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sin. Which means if you love others, you're less inclined to sin against them. And so Peter tells us to keep fervent in that love. Look at verse 10 of chapter 12 here. He says, Love does no wrong. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Basically, he says a number of things here. Love does right rather than wrong. Love does good rather than evil. Love builds up rather than tears down. It encourages rather than discouraging. Love always heals rather than hurts. You can put all that into this. So ultimately, if we want to please God and fulfill all that He commands us to do in regard to one another, all we have to do is commit ourselves to love. Do you ever really think about it that way? Do you ever really think that what you owe others within the church family is to love them? It's funny because they don't deserve it. <laughs> think about that. We never do, do we? You know, I didn't deserve God's love, but He loved me anyway. And unfortunately, you guys in the church here don't also deserve my love, and I don't deserve your love. But guess what? I am obligated to love you. You know, it's funny, Amy and I have this running joke with her where um, when we first got married, she would always ask me, do you love me? And I would always look at her and say, of course I do, I have to. <laughs> you know, and she'd be like, and I'm like, you know, and, I, and me and my, my logic brain would say, but honey, you don't understand. See, I'm driven by the commands. You should find comfort in that because I don't have an option not to love you. So therefore, I will love you. I don't have an out. If you simply wanted me to love you because I feel like it, that may change from day to day. But you see, I'm obligated. The rules say husbands love your wives. So you ought to be thrilled because you will always be loved by your husband. Because I don't have a choice. Now, do I love her because I want? Yes, I do. But I've started to do the same thing with Katie because Katie does all the time. You're going to love me today? I have to, honey. You know, I don't have a choice. You know what I'm getting at. So we want to fulfill all that God has in mind for us among one another. We ought to be committed to loving one another. We ought to see it as an obligation, an expectation. We are indebted to one another is the language Paul uses here. Now the last thing that Paul does here is he encourages us to love one another with a sense of urgency in light of the coming or the second coming of Christ. Look at verse 11. Paul says, Do this knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed, or when we believed. Uh, the English translations are kind of split on this, how they, how they translate this. The uh, ESV and the Holman Christian Standard versions translate this as besides this. In other words, what they do is they, they see it as Paul transitioning to another thought now. In other words, owe each other love, and now also do this very thing that I'm going to talk about. So they see it as sort of Paul transitioning. Most other translations, like the New American Standard, the NIV, the New King James, even the New English Translation, translate it just as the New American Standard does here. Do this, the this meaning what I just discussed. So really what Paul is saying now, and I believe that the, that the, the latter translations, the New American Standard and others, are probably right on this. That what they're saying is, what I just described to you, do this now with urgency. 
He's not transitioning to something else like the, like the other translations do. He's basically saying, what I just told you, you now have to do with a tremendous amount of urgency. He says, do this knowing the time. What's the time he's referring to there? The catalyst for this urgency is understanding that we are getting closer to the return of Jesus Christ. He's saying, because Jesus Christ is going to return, love now like you've never loved before. Do it with a sense of urgency. He says, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep, for now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. Therefore, lay aside, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but instead put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. So Paul says we should owe each other love based on us knowing the time. He also describes the time as a time that we're supposed to awaken from sleep. He says that salvation is nearer than we believed. So the question is, what exactly is he referring to here? I've mentioned it's the second coming of Christ. Um, Paul, and first that you don't have to turn here, I'll mention it, but 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul uses the same three metaphors of sleep, wake, day, night, and light and darkness, all to ultimately refer to to Christ's return. Paul uses those same three metaphors here. Notice he says that it's time for us to awake. We're supposed to behave as if in the day. Um, talks about light and darkness. Not carousing and, and whatnot. So the metaphors that Paul uses here indicates that he's referring to the second coming of Christ. That Christ is going to actually return. Jesus also used the same imagery of being, a le- being asleep in his Gospels. Revelation chapter 3, we have the same thing. This idea of remaining sober, remaining alert, remaining awake, all have to do with us waiting for the expected return of Jesus Christ. So Paul's charge to behave properly and avoid sin fits the context of Christ's return and our glorification. What's kind of interesting about this, I want you to listen to Hebrews chapter 9. There's another interesting statement that's made. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 18, the author says this, So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. But this is a catchphrase here. He will appear, appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await for him. That's what Paul has in mind. Jesus Christ is going to return at some point in the future for the purpose of salvation. So what is that? What does that mean? It doesn't really have to do with our glorification as much as it does our rescue. He's going to come back and take us to be with Him. And it's referred to as a time of salvation. If we understand the Scriptures correctly, we know that God will begin to pour out His wrath on mankind as a final act of judgment, and Christians will be taken out of the way before that happens. And so in that respect, Jesus will save us. And so it's interesting that what Paul actually does here is he says that because Jesus Christ is going to return and because we're going to ultimately face him, he wants us to be ready. And one of the ways that we are ready is by doing the things that he's just warned us about. And so how do we do that? Well, he says love. Because love covers a multitude of sins. 
You know, it's interesting. Um, Each day brings us closer to the return of Christ. And that ultimately should motivate us to live in a certain way. I want you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 3 with me. 2 Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3. I'm going to read an ex- extended passage here, but Second Peter 3, starting in verse 3. He says, Know this first of all, make sure I'm in the right passage, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come in their mocking, or with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the father fell, fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they, maintain, when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward us, or toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Now look at what he says here in verses 11 and 12. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for the hastening, the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his divine promise, we are looking for the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And regard the patience of your Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom, has given or given him, wrote to you. I'll go ahead and I'll end there. But you notice what he says? We're supposed to be looking forward to the second coming of Christ. We know what's coming. And that ought to motivate us, it says, to a certain kind of living. And so when we go back to Romans chapter 13, or, or um, Romans chapter 12 here, what we see is that part of that, he says, is owing one another nothing but love. And if we do that, love will cover, he says, a multitude of sins. Now, before we conclude this morning, I want to focus on something else. Love is easy when it is directed only to those that we like. <laughs> or those who love us back, isn't it? Rarely do you find a problem loving somebody that loves you. I love the fact that Paul says in this passage to love your neighbor. Notice how he starts out. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. Now does that remind you of anything? Do you remember the Pharisee that came to Jesus when Jesus said, love your neighbor and this pompous Pharisee came to him and said, gee Jesus, who's my neighbor? And it was a loaded question because the text tells us he was trying to get out of something. You know? He knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 10. We'll make this our last passage here, but Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. It's the Good Samaritan story. Luke chapter 10, 
starting in verse 25. Luke 10, 25. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What's written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor is yourself. So he understood what the law said. He understood what Paul is saying. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, meaning he apparently wasn't doing it, there were certain people he wasn't willing to love, And so to try to get Jesus to clarify, maybe it would let him off the hook. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, Oh, and uh, who's my neighbor, by the way? Who is it that you expect me to love? Because he was good at loving the right people. Look at how Jesus responds. Verse 30, Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem. You've got to love when Jesus tells stories. Because you know there's something coming. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by all the way on the other side. Okay, The priest didn't want to be around anybody filthy, so he went all the way on the opposite side. Okay, Likewise, a Levite, also a Jew, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side as well. But a Samaritan who was on the journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion, and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day he took out two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper, and he said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, what I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? So the lawyer responded and he said, The one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do the same. I want to read you something. Because without understanding exactly who the players are in this story, it's hard to really comprehend See if I even have it here. Yep. Basically, the story Jesus told is about a Jew who's traveling, who gets robbed, going from Jerusalem to Jericho. And two of his fellow Jews come by and see him there and don't take care of him, don't help him. But a Samaritan does. The Samaritans dated back to 722 B.C., when the hated Assyrians had exiled all but the poorest among the northern ten tribes of Israel. In their place were Amalekites and the Assyrians who interbred with the poor Israelites left in the land, resulting in a half-breed race stigmatized with idolatry and uncleanness. They were called enemies in Ezra 4 when they attempted to help rebuild the temple in the city of Jerusalem. The hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans was legendary. The Samaritans built their own temple on the slopes of Mount Gerizim. They had their own scriptures, the Samaritan Pentateuch, having rejected the writings and the prophets as authoritative. 
Samaritans showed hatred and hostility to Jews traveling to Jerusalem, so much so that many Jews preferred to bypass the region of Samaria entirely and to pass on the east side of the Jordan. Further, the Samaritans started false signal fires to throw off the Jewish pilgrims who were traveling from the Euphrates region to keep the Passover. So the Samaritans weren't nice people. The Jews responded by publicly publicly cursing the Samaritans in synagogue services and refusing to accept their witness in court. When the Samaritans pleaded with Alexander the Great to release them from required tribute payments because they had let the land rest, just as Moses had commanded, Alexander refused their request after determining they were not true Jews. He afterward besieged and destroyed the capital city of Samaria. Even James and John, the sons of thunder, wanted to destroy a Samaritan village by fire. They hated the Samaritans. Even some of the apostles had attitudes about the Samaritans. So when Jesus uses a Samaritan, an enemy who was hated by the Jews, to say, all right, who was the real neighbor here? How do you suppose that Samaritan felt towards the Jew that he was taking care of? They would have been enemies. But Jesus said he felt compassion for him. Why do you feel compassion for him? My guess is because he recognized him as a fellow Jew. Because the Samaritans believed they were Jews. And they were. He had compassion. Felt love for him. And so he was the neighbor. So when Paul says we're supposed to love Our neighbor, do you think that means only people within Renew? Do you think it really means only Christians that we really like? No. It's the body of Christ. Whether we like this person or not does not dictate whether we love them or not. It is so easy for us to love those that love us or those that are like us or similar to us, right? Um, To be real frank, we don't always get along in the body of Christ. But the reality of it is we're still expected to love one another, aren't we? It's to be expected that we don't always get along just because that's the nature of sin. You know? Now, does this mean we have to you know, be best friends with everybody? No. Love is how you act and behave towards one another. We will have friends that are closer than others. We will have some Christians that we like. We will have some Christians that we might not necessarily like. Because of personality differences and all kinds of... And because of sin and everything else. But the reality of it is, we are called to love not just those that are lovable, not just those that we like, not just those that love us back. We're supposed to love our neighbor. We're supposed to love the Samaritans. You know? Within our body, if you will. So let's go ahead and wrap this up. So Paul began our passage today with the call to owe one another nothing except love. It's an obligation. It's an expectation. And the reason it's an obligation and expectation is because God loved us. Remember, the whole first eight chapters of this book is all about how God loved us. What God did for us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Right? And it's because of that that we are now under obligation to love one another. But, the good news in all of that is that when we do that, that love covers a multitude of sins. We want unity within the body? How do we do it? Through love. Bottom line. It's through love. Because love covers a multitude of sins.